Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Although the multifamily market is on fire, there's still a chronic housing shortage that will persist for several years. In many markets, job and population growth is far outpacing existing inventory and new construction. As a result, opportunities still abound in many sub-markets in the country. Today's guest, Matt Piceni, has successfully found opportunities in great markets with B and C value-add properties. So today we have with us a nice gentleman who I've been having a nice little uh, banter with before I hit record. And he, like myself, kind of comes out of the marketing, production, digital, broadcast space, very, very diverse background coming out of media. I just said about nine different things, but... uh, (laughs) Interesting, interesting guy who has pivoted to real estate out of that rich, incredible background who I'll ask him about. Today, we have with us Matt Piceni, who is your backstage guide to passive investing. Matt, welcome to Street Smart Success. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful introduction. You got it. And uh, yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, I look at everybody's background, you know, that I'm going to talk to and, you know, some I could relate to more than others, but yours I could definitely relate to. And it looks, I mean, it's super, super impressive because... I don't know, compared to what I did, which I don't need to get into too much detail about, I was kind of, I've had an agency, I've had local clients and um, ones that you've never heard of, but you worked on really big brand stuff over the years, worked at big agencies with some pretty impressive senior positions, managing director, VP of interactive, executive producer. And so I guess what I want to ask you is, and I know, I, I think, and you could correct me, I'm just judging by your profile, I think you're in New York. A, is that correct? And B, where are you from and what what was your kind of growing up like? And, you know, where did you go to school and all that really fantastic stuff? Great questions. So where I live right now is New York City. I just moved back here a few weeks ago, but, you know, my, my journey really started in Florida. I was born in Florida. Uh, I lived in Orlando. I moved to New York for college and to, to pursue a career in theater which I did and was successful. I was a working actor for about five years and I sort of transitioned over into uh, the digital marketing world. And that's a, that's a whole other story. But so I lived in New York for about 25 years, almost 25 years, uh, in, including the, the, the time I was in theater. And, and I worked in, in the digital marketing, like I said, for, for about 18 years. And while I was climbing the corporate ladder for digital marketing is when I started tinkering around with real estate uh, as a hobby and did real estate as a hobby for 10 years while I was working, you know, on figuratively on Madison Avenue, right? And uh, when I was doing that, I tinkered around with real estate as a hobby for 10 years and uh, I got married and my wife got a really cool job opportunity, but it was in Miami, Florida. So we moved to Miami and when we moved to Miami, that's when I made the transition into doing real estate full time. So I was in Miami for two years and then I was in Boston for the past four years. And now it's kind of come full circle back in New York City. 
uh, for just a little over three weeks now. So it's it's good to be back here. I love New York City. Uh, I've I, I had uh, Miami was nice. Boston I loved. But but New York is really feels like home to me, so I'm, I'm glad to be back home. And and where in uh, New York are you? New York City. I'm in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. Fantastic Park Slope, Williamsburg. <laughs> yeah, Park Flat Slope, push. very good, very good. Technically, I'm in Borum Hill because I'm on the other side of Fourth Avenue. But uh, right across Fourth Avenue, then I'm I am technically in Park Slope. So. I consider it Park Slope. Most people know Park Slope versus Borum Hill. Yeah, I, I would be guilty of that. And when you lived there previously, were you in Manhattan or where were you? So right before we moved to Miami, I lived here where I'm living now. So we've uh, we bought a townhome with the intention of staying there. Um, and then my wife got the job opportunity about a year later. And so we did, we moved, but we kept this place and it's been a nice cash flowing asset. But before we lived here, and I lived here, I think I said for just about a year, we, I lived in, in Manhattan. I lived, uh, I mean, it was, it was almost 20 years. So kind of all up and down, but on the, on the West side of Manhattan, as far up as Washington Heights, I lived on 190th street and as far down as 19th Street in the Chelsea neighborhood. But I spent most of my time in the 70s on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Got it. Got it. You're up in Washington Heights with all the the uh, Dominicans and, and the Orthodox uh, the Orthodox Jews. I'm actually, I might invest in a uh, repositioned, well, soon to be repositioned shopping center uh, in the George Washington, in the entranceway to the George Washington Bridge, high up in the 100s. But that's a whole other conversation. When- I'd love to hear a, a little bit more about that offline. But um, yeah, I mean, I was right by the, the GWB. It's a, it's a little further south, but my sister actually had a place like two blocks away from where you're talking about. So I know that area pretty well we can definitely discuss. One of my younger brother's best friends going all the way back to high school is from a family which which was in Cleveland. He is from a family that is worth billions of dollars and do they do a lot of investing. And so this is a project that he would be spearheading and it's, you know, complicated and I can't even explain it and, and nor does it fit into <laughs> fit into this. I already said do even what I just said doesn't fit into this conversation, but I'm I'm not gonna further jam jam more stuff in. But so when you said that, you know, for 10 years, you tinkered in in real estate as a hobby, what exactly uh, did that mean? Yeah. So for me, you know, I started my first real estate purchase was the property that I bought in Washington Heights. Okay. And I ended up doing some improvements on the unit. And I was also became friendly with some people it was a co-op right most most real estate in in New York City is a is a co-op a cooperative uh, living situation that's run by a board and I had become friendly with a few people on the co-op board and we had talked about the fact that the property just looked run down the lobby was in bad shape the hallways were in bad shape but it was a nice area and you know with just a little bit of TLC, you know, some new carpets or, you know, some sort of new flooring and some new lighting and maybe a coat of paint. We could really make it look nice. And so we did. So they asked me to be on this committee and, and we did. We, we, we really made the property look a lot better without spending really too much money. And um, I fixed the interior of the unit, which was in pretty bad shape. 
And I ended up turning around and selling the apartment for a good amount of money in, inside of a little over two years. And so I ended up quadrupling my initial equity in the property in a very short period of time. And for me, it was like, wow, <laughs> like what just happened? I mean, it allowed me to move. I had originally wanted to live on the Upper West Side. And, and really the reason why is when I first moved to New York, I lived, I went to a musical theater conservatory on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So for me, that was my Manhattan. That was sort of home to me, that area. And, you know, through a number of years and circumstances, I ended up in different places. And then I was living in, in Chelsea by the grace of a, of a relative of mine who, who had a property and, and, um, I was able to be there paying a co-op maintenance fee, which I, otherwise I never could have afforded to live there. And uh, he decided that he needed to sell the apartment and I had to get out. So I was looking for a place on the Upper West Side, couldn't afford the Upper West Side, but was able to afford something in Washington Heights and actually purchase something in Washington Heights. So when I was able to sell that property, I then had enough down payment to buy a place on the Upper West Side, which is my desired place of residency. So that was very powerful to me and really made a light bulb go off in my head. Now, I, I was working in the uh, advertising world and doing well, climbing the corporate ladder. And, and in, in advertising, I was a project manager. I, I'm a PMI certified project management professional, which means that I'm really good at managing people, budgets, and timelines. And so uh, yeah, I was making a good living doing that, but the real estate thing was like, wow. I ended up, after purchasing the place on the Upper West Side, purchasing my first investment. And my first real estate investment was actually a plot of land in Northwest Connecticut, which I then, over time, much later, over several years, ended up uh, developing and building, uh, designing and building a house there, um, which then became a rental house which then I was renting. And that was really my, uh, that, that's really what started my journey in investing in real estate and, and, and investing in rental units. And then I sort of went from there into some, some fix and flips um, and, and using the capital that I got from fix and flips to, to purchase buy and hold properties. But I was really living in the sort of single family, you know, maybe a duplex here or there sort of world until the move that I had mentioned earlier to Miami when I decided to move into real estate on a full-time basis. You know what? I want to interrupt you and, and just I'll throw this in. Matt, what uh, what year were did this sequence start? So for example, what year did you move, you know, did you move to Upper West Side when you were able to afford and you were able to parlay the money you made in Washington Heights and just to get a sense of timing and what year did you move down to Miami and this kind of thing? You know, it's a good question and I'm going to pull up on my computer uh, so I'm never really great with all the dates and things like that. And what I did was I, I've recently written a book. And so with that book, I wanted to put down a timeline as I was writing it so that I could explain all of that really well. So I've got my timeline here. <laughs> I can't believe I did this, but it was helpful when I was working on the book. So you were asking 
what when I when I moved up to Washington Heights. Well, yeah, just to get a sense of and, and then when you know, when you bought your place in, in the Upper West Side, when you were able to afford it because you were able to parlay you know, money that you made, you quadrupled your money, you were able to afford to live in. And then when you moved to Miami, just a general sense of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, so I remembered, I remembered when I bought the property in Washington Heights because we actually, I signed a contract on my way up to Canada. I was going to the Toronto Film Festival. And while I was there, 9-11 happened, which was crazy. Um, So I closed on the apartment in Washington Heights just before the end of 2001. And then uh, I ended up moving to the Upper West Side in 2004. So early 2004, I moved to the Upper West Side. Okay, I get it. And then when we moved, and then I think you asked when we had moved, is that right? Do you wanted to know when we moved to Miami? Yeah. So the move to Miami happened much later. So the move to Miami uh, was in 2015. Okay. And so that's when you went full time. And uh, as you had described before, you had done some fix and flips. You you had uh, developed a little bit of land, Northwest Connecticut. You built a house, rented it out. You had uh, taken some money from fix and flips and, you know, put into some more buy and hold stuff. When you went to Miami in 15, you went full time. So I guess my question is, if you feel compelled to add to any of what I just said, by all means, or if, if there's a correction to be made, Made. I didn't get it right. That's fine too. But then I want to get to like in Miami, what what did full time mean? What what were you so doing? So for me, yeah. So for me, I didn't have, I hadn't done a bunch of fix and flips until we moved to Miami. Um, and so what happened for me was I was I had done pretty well looking at the primary residences and the rental. And I had also invested, um, w- along with my wife, whose full-time job is in the theater, which is interesting because a lot of people thought maybe we met in the theater since I had the theater background. We we didn't meet that way, but we obviously had that in common and something I'm passionate about and a supporter of, but it is her you know, full-time nine-to-five job. We had invested in, in a couple shows and, and one in particular was doing very well. So I was seeing passive income coming from um, the place that I live in right now in Brooklyn, because when we moved to Miami, we rented this property. This is a, is a two family property and we had been renting one of the units when we lived here. And so that was able to uh, reduce our Uh, the amount of money that we had to contribute to the mortgage payments, right? And so once we moved out, this property was generating positive cash flow. The property in Connecticut, the rental in Connecticut was uh, (laughs) not doing so great. I mean, we were pretty much breaking even on it, but I figured with a little bit more work, maybe we could uh, start to turn a profit on that one. And then we had some income coming from, from uh, from the theatrical stuff. So I had a few different sources of passive income coming in. And I also, I was reading at the time, the little purple book that everyone talks about, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it was really clear to me, hey, this passive income streams, this is the way to go. And that's when I decided to to go full-time into real estate because I felt that if there was ways to to produce this passive income and real estate was something that I was passionate about and had done pretty successfully for 10 years, 
I wanted to go whole hog. So I, that's when I, I decided, I, look, I'm going to try to do this real estate thing full time. I spoke with my wife about it. She was on board and I went for it. And so that was well, a little over six years ago now. You've got courage because, you know, you got off the corporate project management, you know, intense ad agency. You had the courage to go and, and, and do this full time. That's impressive. And so you were flipping homes, uh, doing some fix and flips. You were in Miami. And, and then, um, you know, what ultimately, I guess, you know, what was the bridge to multifamily? So the fix and flips that I was doing while I lived in Miami were not located in Miami. In Miami, what I found was that there was really um, the haves and the have-nots and not a lot of people like like I was at the time, just, you know, in the middle. And I found it very difficult to be able to find affordable homes for me to flip based on the risks and my risk tolerance. Um, yeah, I wasn't going to be buying a multi-million dollar home. Um, and I also wasn't going to be buying, you know, a $50,000, you know, home <laughs> either. And so for me, I ended up do, starting to do these fix and flips in, in Ohio. I have a very, very close relative, a cousin of mine who, who I'm very close with. And he lives in, in a town called Cuyahoga Falls, which is between Akron and Cleveland, Ohio. Been there. <laughs> You've been to Cuyahoga Falls? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. I'm one of the, I'm the only guy you're going to do a podcast with that's been to Cuyahoga <laughs> Falls. Wow. You had a cousin and oh my God, what a depressing place. But anyway, go go ahead. Oh, I love it. I think it's really cute, quaint. I mean, I love it. I love. I, maybe it's because my cousin's there and he has a wonderful family, but I just, you know, I, I, I enjoy it a lot. And I was able to buy homes in that area, sort of in the greater Canton, Akron, Cuyahoga Falls sort of area for uh, not too much money. And, uh, but decent homes, you know, three bedroom, two bath, and go in there and, and get ones that were sort of uh, dilapidated and, and go in and, and fix them up and make them look nice and then sell them for the regular market price. So that was good, but trying to do that remotely is difficult. And I mean, I go in a whole chapter in my book about this section, but you know, what happened was it was, it's a very competitive market, right? This fix and flip thing is super competitive. And what I found is that people who are, um, well, first off local and second off handy, especially if you're a contractor or you have some skills, carpentry skills, whatever, you can put in a lot of sweat equity and make these deals work. But for an out-of-state investor such as myself, it was really difficult to find deals that had enough margin on them for a contractor to make their money and for me to make another profit on top of that. And managing projects remotely while I had done that and, and continued to do that to this day, but I had done that, you know, in the advertising world. I was managing teams in in Germany and in India and in Aruba and Chicago while I was based in New York. Um, so I, I I can do that. It does. It can make things difficult. And so, especially with real estate, having local knowledge. I mean, real estate is is very block by block in most places, especially in New York City. So you really need to know the areas and understand them. And so. It just made things kind of difficult and the scale wasn't there for me to be able to successfully do this and make a living for me. I mean, cause I was making, 
I don't know, let's say ten to thirty thousand dollars for each property I was flipping. You know, maybe if I was lucky, I'd make forty or fifty. But so I would need to do like several of these, and most of them were more around the ten grand, right? So it's like it's not chump change. I'm happy if someone were to offer me ten thousand dollars, I I wouldn't turn it down. But if I wanted to be making, let's say, six figures, I'd have to be doing ten of these. So I'd have to be doing one every month, you know, basically, right? So I'd have to be finding one a month and then have it going, and then find another one every month. Just the the trying to get any sort of scale or momentum seemed very daunting. And you know, it's there are people who do it, and, and it makes sense. But for me, it just didn't. And I found out at that same time about syndications, which I had never heard about before. And I had always wanted to go bigger. I wanted to buy more properties like the one I had in Brooklyn, which was cash flowing. But the properties in Brooklyn were not cheap. I mean, they were very, very expensive. And so I didn't have these very, very deep pockets and figured I needed to meet some, have, I, I don't know split up with my wife and marry some sugar mama or something. You know, like I didn't know how was I going to get that sort of capital before I knew the syndication existed. And when I when I learned about syndication, I found out, hey, listen, there's a lot of other investors just like myself who are interested in investing and we can pool our resources together and and go after these otherwise unobtainable assets. And so that was really appealing to me um, for, from two perspectives. Number one, I wanted to invest in bigger deals that I just couldn't do on my own with the small amounts of capital that I had. But number two, hey, this is a way that I could also raise money from other investors and deals that I could spearhead and 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 lead and run. And that's what I do to this day. I mean, I invest passively in syndications about two-thirds of my portfolio or deals that I'm a limited partner investor in. And then about the other third of my portfolio are deals that I'm the sponsor of, that I am the active, you know, a managing member or general partner, you know, actually active and on a on a weekly and sometimes daily basis getting involved in in those deals and the operations. In the ones that you're a GP on, um, Matt, I guess first of all, how many of those are you a GP in, and what is the nature of them? Like number of units, markets, you know, however you want to break that down. Yeah, so. With the property that we're closing on today, my portfolio is going to be around 2,300 doors that I'm a general partner in. Um, and that's across, I, 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 it's around 13 or 14 individual properties. And that's not including the properties that I've been a general partner on in the past that we have then exited, right? So we have some deals that we've gone full cycle on and we have, you know, purchased managed and operated for a couple of years and then turned around and sold them for a nice profit. So the nature of those properties is they're generally B and C class properties and they are generally in the they are generally not in the northeast although I would love them to be. Um they're generally in the south. Uh, most of the properties are in Missouri, Kansas and Texas. You know, I'm just an I'm in awe of you because, man, you you've got <laughs> you've got you you got guts, man. Because again, I come from the advertising business, and 
I've had some success and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I've just been more on the sidelines and uh, I never had what it took to do what you're doing. And so my, my hat's just so off to you because as much as you're a project management guy and I get that and you know how to manage people and you're probably good with process and detail oriented, you'd have to be to have your background. I get that. And I understand that it's transferable, but only to a point. I mean, it's still like you you've really taken on. I mean, you've had to have learned just such an incredible amount and you've just had balls. I'll just throw the word out there. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really impressed. So, so I guess my question is this, on the deals where you are a GP on, you talk about, you know, 13, 14 properties, 2,300 doors. What's the structure like around this? So how many other GPs are there in those typical projects? You have like one or two other GPs or is it three, four? What, what does that look like? Does it just, it, does it vary deal to deal to deal? Yeah, it does vary from deal to deal. I have never done a deal where it's only me. And I'm not sure if I ever will. I like the idea well, I don't, I don't have any staff. I don't have any employees, right? Except for, I guess, myself, right? But, and that's something that may change as my business is growing and scaling. But to have another general partner, another investor who's got experience and experience is different than mine as a, as a partner is invaluable. And I say that because, you know, Two heads are better than one, right? We're able to bounce ideas off of one another and bring each other's unique skills and life experiences to the projects and help make them better. And I have uh, one particular person that I tend to collaborate with a lot. Now, I haven't done exclusively all of my deals with him, uh, but uh, you know, 95% of them I do with him. And we have found another person um, that we really like who we are, you know, doing deals with now. So there's, there's basically a core at the moment of the three of us and then different people depending on the deal and the skill sets. And, you know, we try to find things that, you know, where, where everybody complements one another. You know, um, one of my partners is very good with the exteriors, right? And, and, and curing deferred maintenance. I'm very good with the interior renovations, you know, the, that fix and flip background and that kind of like little, you know, I, I have a little bit of an eye for that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm also really good at, at doing market analysis, right? And so I, I'm kind of in charge of, all right, here's the interiors and here's what we're doing with the rent movements. And then both, both he and I and our third partner are, are always on those, on the weekly calls that we have with our property management team. And just depending on the project and workload, certainly you know, maybe I'll take the lead on this property and someone will take the lead on the other one, but we're all on those calls together. And then the third person I was talking about, he he's uh, really a numbers guy. And that, that's what he did full time before going into real estate. He was a, an actuary. And so he's really good at looking at the numbers and the financials. And not to say that I can't do that, but it's good when you have different experts in, in different portions of the business where they can sort of just focus on that. So he's He's focusing a little bit more on sort of that. Taking a look at, I mean, we're talking about getting granular with each line item in the PL and the expenses on a monthly basis. And why, why is our water 2% higher this month than it was last month? I mean, really getting into the nitty gritty to really hone these properties and get them uh, running tightly and smooth, smoothly. So, you know, but depending on the size of the property and the, you know, all the different 
moving pieces that are going on. I mean, we may have up to four or five general partners on a deal or as little as two. I see. Got it. Interesting. You know, back when you were like fixing and flipping in, in Cuyahoga Falls, and I didn't, you know, I felt bad afterwards that you so quickly corrected me because, you know, Cuyahoga Falls itself, actually, I, I was there. I'm actually from Cleveland originally. So trust me, I, I have no position to be looking down on anything, <laughs> even though I've lived in the Bay Area Bay Area for years and, and had the same experience, by the way. I bought a duplex for 400 grand. And this goes back many, many years. And then the next thing you know, it was like worth $3 million. But anyway. Wow. Good job. Yeah, well, and and I didn't parlay it the way I could have. That's also an offline conversation. So, you know, you from Miami, it was super hard to do remotely. It was hard to compete with local guys that are, you know, swinging a hammer, you know, could work, you know, they didn't have the 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 labor expense that you did, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess what what has your experience been, I guess, doing all this stuff? You know, you were in Boston most recently. Now you're back in, in Brooklyn. What have been the, the challenges doing all that, you know, from, uh, you know, remotely if you're doing stuff in Missouri and Kansas and Texas? Well, there hasn't been too many challenges. Thank goodness. You know, COVID threw a little bit of a wrench in things, right? Because prior to COVID, I was on a plane, you know, about once a month, if not more, traveling to the properties, right? Doing property tours and taking a look at them. But um, I've also been fortunate enough to pick partners on the different deals that are local. So I've got a partner who's local boots on the ground, right? Who's there, who can take a look at the properties. In most cases, there's a, a couple of exceptions, but in, in, in 99% of the cases, we've got local partners. Um, so that's really, really helpful. And that's, you know, they're my eyes and ears there. Now, with today's day and age, we have technology, which allows us to do many different things. You know, a photo can be sent electronically, so can video and so can FaceTime. So a lot of the times we'll FaceTime and we can take a look at properties and see what's going on. We do our uh, weekly status calls. We have a standing weekly status call with our property management companies. Uh, we do those on FaceTime. We we can see the people and we also can share screens and take a look at things. I mean, I use a, a dashboard that I created back in my project management days and have tailored it uh, towards real estate. But I have a multi-tab spreadsheet that we use to take a look at KPIs, uh, which are the, the key performance indicators. Um, of, uh, you know, how well the property is doing with things like vacancy, you know, make readies, trouble tickets. I mean, I, I could go on and on. I mean, <laughs> we, we have a lot of data in that dashboard that we're looking at and we're keeping track of our status on all the different projects that we have going on at the property because we're, we're, we're always doing value add. We're always uh, have little different projects that we're working on at the property. So we, we keep track of those and keep track of what tenants are going to be moving out. And, you know, what does our occupancy look like 90 days out projected and not all, all kinds of different things like that. And so uh, we keep track of that on a, on a weekly basis. And then I'm available for phone calls and, and meetings, which we have a lot of ad hoc emails or meetings 
things, uh, just depending on on what's going on uh, with the property. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, I think on the podcast that, that we happen to be closing on a new property today. Well, the property manager reached out to me yesterday. We've been planning for about a month now. We've been having planning meetings, but she wanted to hop on a call real quick uh, yesterday, just before today's takeover to go over a few things. And I'm sure we'll be talking with her today. We have a meeting on the books for tomorrow. So like at, at different times, we'll, we'll be more and more involved. Um, but my partner, one of my partners on this deal will be there um, today and tomorrow for takeover when we close on the property. And um, that's how I'm able to do things remotely. And so it doesn't really matter as long as I'm close to an airport. And in Boston, Logan Airport was great. Lots of direct flights. And now here in New York, I've basically got three airports. And there's there's technically more if I wanted to travel out to Long Island or up to Westchester. But but really close to me, there's Newark Airport in New Jersey. And then there's LaGuardia and JFK. So, I mean, I can fly, get a direct flight to pretty much anywhere in the world. Congratulations. And I did pick up on it, by the way. And wh- where is the property and how many units is it? And what's the, how did you find it? And what's the thesis behind it? And what are you going to do with it and all that? Oh, okay. So this property is called Oaks at Creekside and it's located in Temple, Texas. So Temple's between, it's essentially between Austin and Dallas for, for anyone listening who doesn't really know Texas too well. But if you know Texas a little bit better, it's, it's a little south of Waco. So it's between Austin and Waco. And it's a 200-unit property. So, so Temple is a small, very, very small market. And because of that, there's barely any construction. There's nothing being constructed right now, nothing projected to be construction. And very, very seldomly is there construction being built. However, they've got a very strong economic drivers there. They have a lot of healthcare there, and they have a lot of um, tech, and there's a lot of companies that are moving there. And so there is really nice job growth in that market, which job growth leads to, you know, uh, population growth, right? So we're seeing uh, a real demand for housing. There is a current demand right now of 4,000 housing units. There are about 4,000 housing units short and the projection is that they're going to be 8,000 short in the next, I believe it was five years. So there's a demand for housing and the people who are getting jobs there, these are nice, high paying jobs. So the property that we've purchased is in an area where there are A class, you know, fairly new construction right by the property and um, that are commanding top dollar. And the asset that we have purchased is a B-class asset, and it is not quite as good, but the exteriors are great. I mean, we're used to buying, there's still light value add, but we're used to buying properties, Bs and Cs, that we have to go in and cure a lot of deferred maintenance, and we'll put in you know, maybe $500,000 or more on a similar property. So this is a 200 unit property on curing deferred maintenance and our budget on this for the exterior repairs. They're all so minor. It's like $80,000 and that includes, you know, sprucing up the amenity package. So it's, um, it's a really clean property in really good shape, but the interior units are dated. So we're going to go in there. We're going to upgrade those interior units. We're going to be doing two levels of upgrades. We'll do, we do this fairly often where we do a standard upgrade and then we do a premium level upgrade, which is 
you know, bit nicer finishes and, you know, see how those do. But our plan is to go in and, and do those renovations and raise rents up a little bit, um, not as high as the A-class neighboring properties, but um, more towards that area. We feel like we have a very competitive property compared to those other ones. And we think that it will be a great value to people in the area to go in and go into a brand freshly renovated unit, you know, with nice amenity package that's been updated and, and, and enjoy the property at a uh, discount to what the other properties in the area are charging. Hey man, makes sense to me. How long did the uh, seller own it and, and why, and what was the story around how you found it and all that stuff? Yeah, so the previous ownership had been with the property for a little while. We have a, a an acquisitions specialist in Texas who is one of the general partners on the property. So he actually has great relationships, as we all do, but his are stronger just because he's out there every day talking with brokers and talking with property managers and really just looking to unearth deals. And so he came across this deal through a contact that he has person that he is a business colleague with and has become friendly with. And this person knew that this deal was coming to market and actually gave us a little sneak peek at it uh, before it, it was released to the general public. And, you know, not everything was there. They didn't, you know, with these properties, when you have a property for sale, it can take a month or two to get all the financials and everything packaged together in a way that the broker wants. And then they send a photographer out there, maybe get some drone footage, right? So it, it takes them a little while to get everything done. And then they usually have a marketing department that they send the stuff to, and there may be a queue there. So we got the raw data uh, ahead of time. And so we were able to go in, do an analysis and, and get a really good understanding of the property itself. And we'd been looking in that market. We were we were interested in that market. And so we were able to go in with an offer, uh, actually the day that it hit the, the actual market, right? The day it was actually released, we were already there with an offer. And we already knew from the broker, you know, the whisper price, which was, you know, the price that, that, that the person was, seller was looking for. And we were able to come in really close to that price. So, you know, day one, we come in with strong offer, strong terms, strong earnest money with an experienced team that's successfully closed, closed transactions of this size and much larger uh, in the area. I, I think for the salary, it was like, great, let's do it. So we were able to get that thing under contract um, very, very quickly because we had a little bit of a head start. And so that's really the advantage to developing those relationships with, with brokers and property managers in the, in the market. What kind of financing have you been doing on your most recent deals? Well, so on this deal, we're doing a very typical Fannie Mae execution, right? So it's a agency debt. We're looking at um, 12 years of debt on this property. And, uh, you know, with, with, the, with that agency debt, there's a lot of advantages to it. You know, it's, it's non-recourse debt. It's 30-year amortized. We have a, a fixed rate. We have a, a few years of interest only at the beginning. It is a, a loan that can be assumed by somebody. Uh, there is a supplemental available. So those agency loans are something that we really look forward to utilizing because of the many different bells and whistles that come with them. Recently, during the COVID crisis, we did venture into a bridge loan. We did a one deal with a bridge loan because, you know, Fannie and Freddie were requiring large amounts of escrowed funds, you know, up to 12 months of principal and interest 
along with taxes and insurance escrowed at, at closing. <laughs> so that was millions of dollars. And so that would require us to raise additional capital and basically dilute our investors' returns. Uh, and the deals just were not making sense with those restrictions. Um, so we were able to get a bridge loan that didn't, you know, that basically had pretty much the same terms, but did not require that very, very large escrow holdback. So um, we did do that. But beyond that one deal that we did that on, every other deal that I've done is is some flavor of agency, you know, whether that's Fannie or Freddie. And, you know, there's many different products that they have um, within that within that arena. Do you know what the rate is on the on this new deal? Yeah, we locked in at a 3.43 interest rate. What are you thinking is going to be the the length of hold on it? Well, you know, that remains to be seen. Uh, but our business plan uh, right now is to hold it for five years. Got it. That's so, so that's interesting. One of the things that we do is we, we look to get 10 to 12 years of debt, but our business plan actually holds us holding onto the properties for about five years. We pay a little bit of a higher interest rate. Um, if you know, if we were only holding it for five, if we if we did five years of debt, we would we would get a lower interest rate. But we would also be at risk five years from now and and be in a situation where we had to refinance or we had to sell. And you know, I don't have a crystal ball that tells me exactly where we're going to be five years from now. So having ten years of debt or twelve years of debt gives us an extra five to seven years of runway. Where if we're at the bottom of the market cycle, um, we can hold on to the property longer if we need to, um, and still have a nice cash flowing asset. So that's sort of our philosophy and reasoning behind that. You know, my. My main overarching philosophy, which I talk about in, in that book I mentioned earlier, is you know having a cash flowing asset, right? If your asset is cash flowing, it really doesn't matter what the valuation is, right? I mean, it could be worth a million dollars, it could be worth a dollar. If it's giving you cash flow, then that's great. And you can hold on to it until market conditions change. Interesting. You know, I love the way you think in this, this topic is coming up a lot. And, you know, because there's, you know, most of the people I'm talking to now are doing bridge loans and, uh, you know, it's a th three years plus, you know, two one year extensions. And I'm always like, and I'm trying to figure things out as I go. And I'm like, and, and I'm a doom and gloom guy. That's just the way I'm wired, blah, blah, blah. But so I'm thinking, yeah, well, what happens in five years? Who, who the hell knows? And everybody thinks that, well, you know, if interest rates go up, it's going to be gradual, which is probably true. But who the hell knows, right? And I mean, you're hedging against that and you're willing to maybe leave a little bit on the table, you know, for the five years or whatever, but you're super hedged. So I just, you know, some black swan and you can't execute in the next three or four years just because of who the heck knows. So I, I think it makes an incredible amount of sense. My last question for you is, is what is the investors club? <laughs> sure. I just want to add on to one thing that you mentioned about the interest rates, which is just that, you know, two years ago, well, let, let's say two and a half years ago, we were getting rates on properties at, you know, 5.1%, which was like a great rate at the time. Fast forward two years later, and rates were were below three. I mean, I, I we have a couple of deals that we locked in debt at 
know, 2.8, 2.9, right? Um, and now rates are back up at 3.4, um, you know, six months to a year later. So the rates do fluctuate, right? And so we're not always going to be in a low interest rate environment. Sometimes they'll be lower than they are right now, and sometimes they'll be higher. So I, I, I just, I agree with you that they can move pretty quickly. Um, and so, uh, sorry, what was the question? I forgot what you asked. You know, and so do I. I forgot. No, I do remember. <laughs> I do remember what I asked. I was asking, but thank you for that clarification. I think that's, yeah, I mean, just two years ago at 5%. So that's uh, an interesting point of reference. No, the question is, what's the Investors Club? Oh, yes, the Investors Club. So, you know, most of the deals that I do, like 99% of them are... Um, something called a 506B. So there's basically two ways you can syndicate them. And one of them requires people to be accredited. And there's a financial hurdles that you have to hit to be accredited. The ones that I do, a 506B, you can be accredited or you can be sophisticated and still get into my deals. Um, but the whole thing is I have to have a pre-existing relationship with somebody and it has to be substantive right it can't be oh i i saw you at a party real quick and got your your business card right i i have to to know the person so my investors club because on my website and, I, and i've been on you know this podcast and others and I, I write articles for forbes and 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 fast company and so people find me on the internet and will sign up for my newsletter but i can't allow them into my deals of I haven't met them. I don't know who they are. So the Investors Club, it's it's free to join, but it's just a way for people to sign up, uh, answer a few questions online, and then get a one-on-one -on -one meeting with me so we can get to know one another and I can understand what they're looking for and answer questions about what I do and uh, just sort of build a relationship with people. And then in the future, if I get an opportunity, I send it out to the Investors Club. Only those people uh, get the, the investment opportunities. I got it. Well, boy, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. I uh, have a trip. I don't have the dates nailed down, but I am going to, yours truly is going to be in your neck of the woods at some point in the next month. And boy, it sure would be good to get a cup of coffee. That would be fun. Uh, Matt, tell, I agree. yeah, we'll do that and tell listeners how to get a hold of you. Yeah. Best way to get a hold of me is through my website. It's Pacheni. Dot com and I'll spell that. It's P like in Peter, I C H E N Y dot com. There you can learn about my book, uh, maybe get a free copy of it if you're lucky. So check it out. There's a contact page. You can shoot me an email, give me a call, whatever, but it's all there at pacheni.com. Matt has been just fantastic talking to you. I've enjoyed every second of it and I look forward to meeting you in person. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really had a fun time speaking with you today. You got it. Talk to you soon. <laughs>